Well, this morning uh, we come to uh, the ninth of our 12 minor prophets in our study called Return to Me. And this is the last one we're going to cover for a while because, as you heard, beginning next Sunday, we're going to launch into our Easter countdown service. And so we'll take a little bit of a break. We'll leave three for the backside. This is number nine out of 12. And I'm excited to say that today we've arrived at my personal favorite of all 12, Habakkuk. The reason I love Habakkuk so much is because of both its content and its format. It is unique among the prophets in that it doesn't follow the typical format where the prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God and uses this sort of prophetic formula of, of warning and judgment and a future hope for Israel. We've seen that a number of times in our study so far. Habakkuk doesn't follow it. In fact, he doesn't address the people at all. His dialogue is with who? With God, with Yahweh. And Habakkuk has questions. Questions about what he sees happening in the world. Maybe this is why I like this book so much, because I have questions. And you probably have questions as well, because it can be confusing down here, especially in a time when there's this global pandemic happening, and, and everywhere we look, people are losing their collective minds, buying toilet paper in numbers that, it's so irrational. I, 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 I said to somebody yesterday, 57 years on this earth, I have never seen anything more irrational than the toilet paper run at Costco, and bottle water as if they're going to turn off our water. I, I mean, I don't understand what's going on. But the Lord does. But Habakkuk has questions. And some of the questions are fundamental to the way we see life. And the answers that we get in this book provide for us a crucial understanding of, of who God is, what his character is like, and how he is operating in our world. So honestly, I can't think of a more appropriate book to be studying than Habakkuk this morning, when our, our nerves are frayed and we're all wondering what the future holds. And can I share something with you? Uh, I mean, in addition to the fact that God's sovereign, he knew this was all going to happen, and we'd be studying this book this morning. It's, the timing's amazing. But one of the most exciting things about studying God's Word is that every time we approach a particular text of Scripture, we come to it in a different, with a different frame of reference because life changes. And so we're at a stage here, and we read Habakkuk, and then maybe 10 years later, we read it over here, and it it feels very fresh and different, doesn't it? Because the Spirit is illuminating our minds and giving us new applications based on this new frame of reference that we have. And today is an example. Think about this. If we had studied this same book a month ago before we even knew what a coronavirus is, we might have sort of written Habakkuk off this morning as, well, you know, that's never going to happen to us. But it's very applicable today, very relevant, very applicable in a moment like ours. And so as an introduction to Habakkuk, let me just bookend the story for you. Let me give you the, the, the beginning and the end. At the very outset of the book, you're going to see the prophet is going to ask God some very pointed questions. He appears to be confused and frustrated and worried. And at the end of the book, he declares, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And the key to understanding Habakkuk is to figure out what was the process that got him from point A to point Z, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. How did he go from worry to worship? 
worry to worship. That's what we need to figure out this morning. Before we do that, we're going to do what we've been doing every single week. We're going to talk about the historical context of this book, because what Habakkuk is going to talk about is very historical. So I'm going to put this slide up again. Hopefully you got it memorized. Uh, We began our study by looking at some prophets in what we call the divided kingdom period. You see that from 930 to 722. And now we're wrapping up today in pink, the solitary kingdom period from 722 to 586. And those numbers are important. We looked at it last week. 722 is the fall of, of, yes, of Samaria or Israel. And 586 is the fall of, of Judah or Jerusalem. Right. So we go from two kingdoms to one kingdom to how many kingdoms? Zero. Very good. So as we shrink down that timeline now in the solitary kingdom, there's a whole bunch of things going on as Judah sort of spirals down towards destruction in the year 586. So we left off here last Sunday with the rise of this godly king, Josiah, in the year 640 BC. You see him there on the timeline. And we looked at Zephaniah last week. And by the way, Jeremiah was also prophesying in the land during this exact same time. And now we're going to come to Habakkuk that you see there. So with King Josiah, we saw his, his, his godly rise and the reforms he established in Judah. And then we looked at his tragic fall on the battlefield of Megiddo in the year 609 BC. He was the last righteous king to rule in the land of Judah. Four kings will follow him. Between 609 and 586, when Judah dies, four kings will follow him, each wicked and each doing his part to contribute to the downward spiral of Judah, which is going to end up in her destruction. And from a strategic or military perspective, think about this. The death of Josiah in 609 at Megiddo and the defeat of his army puts Judah in a very vulnerable spot. Josiah's son, Jehoahaz was put on the throne. I'm making him small because he is only going to last three months in power. Jehoahaz. 2 Kings 23 tells us the the Egyptian pharaoh, the same one who had defeated Josiah in battle, he didn't like the choice of Jehoahaz. And so he decided that he was going to impose his will on Judah and establish his own ruler in the land. So I'll put a passage up on the screen. 2 Kings chapter 23, beginning in verse 34. It says, Pharaoh Necho, that's the Pharaoh who had killed Josiah in battle, made, and because last week we talked about the pronunciation of the Hebrew names, I'm going to try to get some of them correct. And then I'll go back to the regular English ones, just so I don't confuse you. But Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Yehoiakim. Okay. But he took Yehoahaz, in Hebrew, away, that's, he deposed him, and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. So Yehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh. So going back to our time frame, you see, we'll call him Jehoiakim, just because that's what we call him. So Nika was able to put Jehoiakim in power as his puppet king. He plundered Judah's treasury, and he imposed uh, basically economic sanctions on the land. But that's going to change. So Nico is able to rule over Judah for four years until this famous battle that I've been talking about for several weeks. And you're like, why do we care? The Battle of Carchemish that takes place in 605 BC. What happens there? The, Babylon- the great Babylonian army destroys a combined force of what was left of the Assyrians 
plus Pharaoh Necho and his Egyptian army. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar slaughter the Egyptian army. And suddenly, Jehoiakim finds himself released from the, being a prisoner of, of Egypt. And so in that same year, this new Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, he is going to go, and we saw here how on the map, how they invaded Nineveh, took down Nineveh, then chased the Assyrian army over to Carchemish. And now Nebuchadnezzar, while he's out west, decides, hey, this is as good a time as any to come down the coastline and secure my western territory. So Nebuchadnezzar comes to Judah for the first time to impose his will on God's people. And Jehoiakim has no choice but to bow down to him, to give him financial tribute, and, and to allow him to take back to Babylon some of Israel's finest young men to be trained to work in Nebuchadnezzar's royal household. Who gets taken in that? Daniel. Daniel gets taken in this first visit that the Babylonians make to Israel. So we see Daniel also beginning to prophesy right around the same time in 605. Now, Jehoiakim dies in the year 597, and his son Jehoiakim, just to keep it confusing, comes to the throne. He too only lasts three months in power. 2 Kings 24 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar made a second trip to Jerusalem, circled the city, and began to lay siege to it. And here he is. Poor Jehoiakim in 597 rides out to meet the Babylonian king to plead for peace, to bring him all kinds of financial gifts, to basically pay him to go away and to stop laying siege to the city. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, thank you very much. I will take all the treasure in the temple and in your palace. I will take more captives. And he, he takes Jehoiakim captive as well, puts a ring in his nose and drags him off to Babylon, never to be seen again. That's not nice. If you didn't know this, Nebuchadnezzar, not a nice man at this point, right? Not at this point. So he puts his own puppet king on the, on the throne then. His name is Zedekiah. Nebuchadnezzar handpicks the uncle of Jehoiakim, his name is Zedekiah, and puts him on the throne. And Nebuchadnezzar takes more captives back to Babylon. In fact, 10,000 of them, including the prophet Ezekiel who you see there as well. So now our timeline is complete. We've made it. This is the full timeline for the, for the end of the, the solitary kingdom. And it's packed, isn't it? You have three major prophets at work during this time. You have two minor prophets at work in this time. And you have four really wicked kings. So there's a lot going on around the year 586. Now, I'm going to fast forward really quickly to the fall of Judah. So that, number one, historically, we're, re we're ready when we come back to the minor prophets. But second, everything I'm about to describe is what Habakkuk sees in his vision, what he is going to prophesy about. So Zedekiah becomes the final king in the history of Judah. He rules for the final 11 years of the kingdom. And like so many other things, it is pride that becomes Zedekiah's downfall. He decides, and scripture records this, to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, to stop paying him off. And for whatever reason, he got it in his head that, well, we can stop, cut these payments off, and we can defend the city of Jerusalem from the mighty Babylonians. And it is a terrible miscalculation. 2 Kings 25, we'll, we'll put it on the screen here. This is the recording of the fall of Judah. Now, in the ninth year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army, against Jerusalem. They camped against it, and they built a siege wall all around it. Imagine, they took the time 
to build basically a security wall around their siege. So the city was under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. This is one of the primary tactics in the ancient world, surround a city and wait them out. They will run out of food and water eventually. Then the city was broken into. You see that there? That's key. They breached the walls. And all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. So they were able to find a way out of this perimeter. How? Well, this is called Zedekiah's cave. You can visit it when you go to Jerusalem. It is a massive cave structure underneath the old city of Jerusalem and basically escaped through this cave structure and got outside the perimeter, he and his people. It's an amazing place. If you ever go to Jerusalem, make sure you see Zedekiah's caves. So let's keep continuing the passage. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered. They caught the guy. He thought he was making a getaway. They caught him. His army scatters. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. Now this is where the tragic part comes. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. So the last thing that Zedekiah would set his eyes on was the execution of his son, so that in his blindness, for the rest of his life, he would know that his family and his dynasty was forever done. Sad story. What happens next? Well, after slaughtering the defenders of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar's army levels the walls of the great temple, Solomon's temple, knock down the walls, burn everything inside. Why would they do that? Why, why burn such a structure? Well, in ancient times, this was a symbol that basically said, my God is greater than your God. Because if your God allows me in here to burn your temple, clearly my God is greater than your God. And the Babylonians, they mocked Yahweh and lifted up the name of their patron deity, Marduk. And they burned the king's palace to the ground and they burned every home they could find. They plundered the city they committed the worst atrocities that you can possibly imagine. They arrested every priest. They arrested all the officials of the city. They put them to death. And then they carried away the rest of the population in exile, hauling them 700 miles across the Syrian desert to resettle them in the land of Babylon, leaving behind only the poorest of pe peasants to stay in Jerusalem, which was now desolate. So you have to try to understand what's going on here. You have to try to, as best you can, step in these sandals and, and understand the grief that this brings, the, the pain, the lament. Israel is already gone. It's been gone for more than 100 years now. But now Judah is gone from the land. They're captive. God's promised land, his precious holy land is a desolation. The temple, the very house of God, lies in ruins. There is no kingdom left in the land. This is absolute rock bottom, 586 B.C. And this is the scene of tragedy and destruction that Habakkuk is shown in the vision. This is the future that he is facing as he writes down his prophecy. Do you have it open? Turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. So that's everything that he's about to see. You might recall we, we talked a couple weeks ago that among the minor prophets, three of the twelve 
specifically write oracles against the enemies of Israel. Obadiah wrote against the Edomites. Nahum wrote against the Assyrians. And now today we see Habakkuk writing against Babylon. Verse 1, it's about as simple as it gets. The oracle which Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. That's it. That's all we get about this guy. That's it. The outline of the book is also simple, and we're going to walk through it a little bit, so this will be on the screen for a while. It's a, chapter 1 is a back-and-forth conversation between Habakkuk and the Lord in this format. Question, answer, follow-up question. Then chapter 2 is an extended answer from God where he's going to talk more about Habakkuk's objections. And then chapter 3 is the prophet's prayer in response to the answers that he's received. It's actually written as a psalm to be sung. It's in uh, poetic form. So that's the outline. We're going to walk through the questions and some of the answers. And I think by the time we're done, you're going to say, okay, I'm ready to face the coronavirus. (laughs) I mean, I'm ready for whatever comes. That's the point here. So let's start in verse 1. Look at uh, chapter 1. Look at verse 2. This is where Habakkuk begins. Remember, he's recording this after the death of King Josiah and during the period of these four wicked kings. So these are dark days. So he's writing then with a view to the future of what's coming. Okay. So Habakkuk addresses Yahweh in this state of frustration and distress. Verse 2, how long, O Lord, how long will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. And therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous and therefore justice comes out perverted. How many of you guys feel like this sometimes? Honestly, every hand's got it. I mean, come on, right? You feel the pain of the prophet here, don't you? Lord, there's so much chaos in our world, right? So many things seem to be going wrong. There's violence everywhere and corruption and greed and injustice. Bad people are constantly getting away with doing bad things. They're they're not held accountable. And so, Lord, why don't you come down here and fix this mess? I mean, that's often how we feel. Come down and fix it. And then here's what's often most frustrating, at least for me. Sometimes I'll pray for things which I am sure, based on Scripture, are right in the will of God, and yet he still doesn't answer. Right? I mean, who who argues with this? To ask God to halt the spread of evil and call the wicked to account. Would that not be in God's will? Of course, we have to be careful as we do that. It's way above our, our pay grade to demand things of God, and he has no obligation to justify his ways to creatures like us. But still, why doesn't he do what seems to be clearly in accord with justice. Why not? This is where Habakkuk is coming from. And it's interesting, some scholars think that he's acting sinfully here. There's two camps on this. The smaller camp is, well, Habakkuk is acting sort of like Jonah. He's stubborn, he's obstinate, he's disrespectful to God here. I totally disagree. I don't take that position at all. I see Habakkuk as a man who rightly acknowledges the attributes of God. He knows that God is sovereign and holy and just, And it's because of those things that he's frustrated. He knows God. 
But he's frustrated by that because the very fact that God is those things, that's the source of his bewilderment. I understand it. He just can't fathom why God doesn't come down and clean house. He looks at God's character. It seems irreconcilable that this is God's character, yet he would not come down and change conditions. He would not fix it. Now, in my opinion, that's not sin at all. I, what we call this is faith-seeking understanding. Okay? And, and I think this is a healthy thing. Habakkuk is a man whose faith is there. It is solid. He's just asking for some explanations. I know I do that at times. It doesn't rock my faith to say, Lord, I don't get what's going on. Now, again, we need to be careful in that, but this is faith-seeking understanding. He asks, how long, Lord? How long do I have to wait? Because I know who you are. I know what you love, so how long do I have to wait for you to act? It's a brutally honest cry of anguish and suffering from the prophet. So how's God going to answer? Look at verse 5. So two through four is the first question. Now here comes God's response. Verse five, look among the nations, Habakkuk, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. What is a Chaldean? It's synonymous with Babylonians. Technically, the Chaldeans were a specific tribe within the greater Babylonian people. But it's the same thing. These are Babylonians. Verse 6. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. In other words, they don't submit to me. Now, earlier Habakkuk had complained that God was not responding. And now he gets a reply. So that's a praise, correct? Maybe not. Maybe not if you don't like the answer. First, God doesn't give Habakkuk an answer as to why he's allowed conditions on the ground to get as bad as they are. That's beyond the prophet's need to know. I find that interesting. We don't get all the answers we'd like to have, right? He doesn't give an answer for that. In fact, you could say that God implicitly says, you know what, Habakkuk, you're right. Things are pretty messy down there. He's acknowledging that what the prophet says is true about the conditions in Judah. It's how God plans to respond to the problem that creates additional concerns and questions in Habakkuk's heart. How God plans to respond. God says, yeah, justice is coming, my friend. And it's coming soon, but maybe not in the way you like It creates more questions. It's coming. He's going to raise up this dreaded Babylonian army led by, of all people, Nebuchadnezzar. This is the army that is so vicious that it was able to ride up to Nineveh and conquer an unconquerable city, chase it halfway across the ancient Middle East, and then destroy the Egyptian army. Those people, that army is coming now your way. Feel the trembling in that. That would not be a fun position to be in. That's the army that's coming. That's God's justice. And the way God expresses himself here is interesting. He says, take a good look around you, Habakkuk. Keep your eyes open. Be amazed. I have not been asleep at the wheel. I have been working this whole time. I, the Lord, have been moving the, geologic, or the, the geopolitical chess pieces all across the board to bring about what's about to happen. Friends, God controls it all. 
He's proven it over and over and over again in human history. He is, he is sovereign over every geopolitical move that takes place in this world. I don't care how powerful or authoritative kings think they are or prime ministers or presidents. God is in control of all of it. And that, that goes for Israel and Judah and Assyria and Egypt and Babylon and America and China and Russia and Iran and every other nation on the face of the earth. God swings them all like a sword for his sovereign purposes. We have to remember that. When we look out at the landscape and we see what's happening, we have to realize that God is swinging the nations and the kings for his own purposes. Now, so what is Habakkuk going to say to that? He has more concerns than he did before. Well, look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. So catch that. Habakkuk shows he knows God. God is eternal and holy. He even acknowledges in there his lordship. He says, you, O Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them, the Babylonians, to correct. So he's accepted God's verdict here. The Chaldeans will act as, God, as Yahweh's judge and his rod of correction. And Habakkuk seems to be submitted to that unfortunate truth. But in light of that, here comes the big objection. Verse 13. Circle this one. Highlight it. He says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, Lord. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they. So Habakkuk is having a hard time understanding how a Chaldean attack on Judah furthers God's purposes. Why would that be a good thing, Lord? How is it good that God's own people should be subjected to the horror of this invasion by such a wicked, awful people? Do we agree with that? I mean, is that, would you ask that same question? Make it personal for a second. Say you were concerned about the worldly condition of the church in America. And you said, you know, I'm going to commit myself every day to pray for the American church. And you're going to pray that God would change that. And you pray and you pray and nothing happens. The church continues to spiral down. And then one day the Lord gives you a vision. And the vision is of a Chinese army invading America, destroying churches all across the land, slaughtering your family, taking your wife as a slave, would you have questions? Would you have concerns? See, this is the thing. We often read this in a sterile way. We're like, it's so far away. Uh, those things don't happen here. But what if it did? You'd have questions and concerns. And for Habakkuk, the question is this. How can a holy and righteous God use an unholy and unrighteous people like the Babylonians to punish his own covenant people? How, how can he do that? You're too holy for this, Lord. I like the way the prophet says that so confidently. You're, you can't look on this type of evil. But here's the thing. Had God not spoken to this in the past, in the law? How many times have I told you in this series that we're going to keep coming back to Deuteronomy 28? The blessings and curses chapter of the law. This is what the terms of the covenant are. If you obey me, this are the blessings that you'll have. If you disobey, this is what I, the Lord, promise to do. 
And in Deuteronomy 28, it says this, if you disobey, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. God's faithful to his promises in both salvation and in judgment, isn't he? From the ends of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed, who also leaves you no grain, new wine or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. We read that and go, what's with all the animals and stuff? That is life for Judah, taking away everything that they have, everything. And if Habakkuk needed an example of when God was faithful to do this, all he had to do was look to what happened to Samaria. Oh, just more than 100 years earlier when Israel fell, God did the same thing because of the unrighteousness of Israel. He brought the Assyrian armies to destroy them. Now, perhaps we can chalk up Habakkuk's not understanding this to the fact that they had just recently found the law. Do you remember that? In the days of Josiah. So maybe he, he wasn't up to speed on Deuteronomy 28. So I'm going to cut him some slack on that, that maybe he didn't understand that, that, that there were curses for disobedience. But there's another part of his objection that I think is more important that I want to point out to you. Habakkuk suffers from a fundamental misunderstanding of the doctrine of sin. Look again at the end of verse 13. He says to God, why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous, more righteous than they? He's implying that the people of Judah are more righteous than the Chaldeans. Those people over there, they're obviously wicked, but we're not nearly as bad as them. Don't we all have a tendency to do this? I'm better than most. Is there a danger in this? We drop categories of sin, and then we rank them, right? And usually we rank our sins as not as bad. I mean, if we're going to customize it, why not, right? There's everybody else is so wicked. Well, I may do this little thing over here, but I would never do that. That's for serious sinners, we have a built-in defense mechanism that always tries to cover up the depth of our own depravity, to self-justify. But at the end of the day, and at the root, every sin is abhorrent to God. Every sin will be punished. And so Judah is just as guilty as the Chaldeans before a holy God. Habakkuk's attitude, I would call it Jewish supremacy, is exactly what Paul had to deal with later on in the book of Romans, didn't he? That somehow you're better because you're you know, they have Jewish blood in you. In fact, Romans 3.9 says, Paul says, what then? Are we the Jews better than they, the Gentiles? Paul says, not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. So Habakkuk suffers from this idea of Jewish supremacy. And by the way, just from a practical perspective, did we not read just last Sunday from 2 Kings 21 about King Manasseh? I'll read it again. Manasseh seduced Judah to do more evil, more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. And yet Habakkuk says, but yeah, but they're way worse than us. Theologically, Habakkuk is treading on ice here. And from this practical perspective, 
Judah is no more innocent than the Canaanites, than the Assyrians, or even Babylon. We have to have a fundamental understanding of our sin, don't we? And not try to hide it, not try to water it down, not try to self-justify. So, let's go back to our outline. Let's look at God's extended answer. Go over to chapter 2. By the way, I have to say, as I'm criticizing the prophet, God's going to straighten him out, by the way. While his perspective may be off in that particular area, I do love his approach to how he wrestles with these problems. I have no problem with this. He's honest before God. He's, he's striving to submit. I see that, that spirit of submission. He's trying to get there. And he doesn't let his own objections undermine, undermine the foundation of faith that he has in God. This is really important. This is sound advice. When you and I are struggling to understand what's going on around us, when we're struggling, we look around and like circumstances are swirling and I can't interpret what's happening. Start with what you know about God from Scripture. Use that as your starting point. I don't get what's happening, but I can know some things. I can look here, and I can see the character of God, and that's my starting point. And then we let that inform all the questions and concerns that you have. It's okay to wrestle. But when we wrestle, make sure that you cling to Scripture as your anchor of truth and let it inform the position you eventually end up in. Make sense? Say yes. Good. All right. Now... A word of comfort for Habakkuk from the Lord. In fact, turn back really quickly to the second half of chapter 1, verse 11. Already in chapter 1, verse 11, God says, They will be held guilty, Babylon. They whose strength is their God, they will be held guilty. Now go over to chapter 2. Let's see how the prophet goes from here. Chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he, God, will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Guys, one of the hardest lessons that we have to learn in the Christian life is this, how to wait on the Lord. We are a, as they say, microwave generation. We hate waiting. We need answers. And so this is an ever-present discipline for us especially, catch this, especially in times of stress and tribulation, to be able to wait on the Lord. And, and we live in a crazy 24-hour news cycle right now uh, where things come up and within 48 hours, they're gone. I mean, just recently, we were supposed to be part of World War III with Iran, right? That's gone. I, mean, I, could, go, I, could, I could give you 10 things that we thought were just earth-shattering that happened three weeks ago. That are now gone. So we live in this crazy news cycle. And so we have an opportunity now to worry more than ever and panic over everything. And it can leave us scared and exhausted and locked in our homes. And so the concepts of waiting and watching, as Habakkuk does here, become more and more important in this type of period. Now, I think Habakkuk realized that he wasn't going to manipulate God into giving him a quick answer. So he resolves here to stand and to wait. What a great image for us as we're wrestling with what's happening. You're not going to manipulate God into an answer. You're not going to force his hand, stand like a watchman, and wait for his reply. That's what he does. He stands on the wall. He's fully alert. He's ready to hear from the Lord. And this is a good posture to take. Verse 2. Then the Lord answered me. I don't know how much time was between that. But the Lord answered me and said, record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. The point of this is, he says, look, Habakkuk, 
What I'm about to tell you is really important. I want you to write this down so not only you can read it and believe it, but the entire remnant of Judah can as well. Verse 3. Here's what he wants them to know. Verse 3. This is the comfort. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. What's he talking about? Judgment on Babylon. It will come. Just wait on it. Now, verse 4 is often said to be the key verse of the whole book. Okay, look at it carefully. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. In fact, it's the very phrase that was the most important phrase in the conversion of Martin Luther. This phrase here in verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Here it comes. But the righteous will live by his faith. It seems like an odd statement in the middle of all this, doesn't it? But the, the key to understanding what this verse is saying is to see the contrast. Habakkuk says there's two types of people in this world. Just generally speaking, there are those who are proud. And God's judgment in this verse is, listen to this, that the proud person has a defective soul. His soul is not right within him. It's puffed up. Because the proud person is trusting in himself. What a foolish thing to do. The proud person is self-sufficient. He sees no value in humility. He sees no need for God. He believes he has everything under control, and he believes in the end it will be his good deeds that will save him. His soul is defective. And then on the other side are those who live not by what they see, but by faith, Habakkuk says. Day to day, trusting in the Lord, leaning not on their own understanding. These God refers to as the righteous. There's the proud and there's the righteous. These have ceased to trust in themselves. They're not trusting in their own goodness. They're not trusting in their good works. They humbly accept God's provision for salvation and they live their lives trusting him explicitly and are striving to obey his word. The proud and the righteous. Right? Choose this day which side you will serve. Are you proud or are you part of the righteous? This is, guys, these are, these are the biggest questions of life. Which camp are you in? When it all boils down, that's it. Proud versus humble, trust in self versus trust in God, condemned versus saved. Now, the rest of chapter 2 is a series of woes. We won't go through these, but these are woes spoken against the proud. They're condemned for all the things which flow from a proud, unbelieving heart. Violence, oppression, greed, plunder, idolatry, all of those things. And it's important to note here that when you read this chapter, it's clear that the primary object of these woes is Babylon. Babylon, that's who God is going to judge ultimately. But as we read these woes, we shouldn't forget the sum total of biblical theology, and that's this. It's not where you're from that ultimately matters. I don't care if you're an Assyrian or an Egyptian or a Babylonian or Israelite or from Judah. In the end, the deciding factor, doesn't matter if you're from America, by the way, or China or Iran or Russia, the deciding factor is, does God see you as righteous in his sight? That's it. Has God declared you righteous in his sight? It doesn't matter where you're from. So as we read these woes, it's true, Babylon is the primary target, but this applies to every person on earth. It applies to every person in this room today. Are you part of the proud or are you part of the righteous? 
What are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Now, what's the historical postscript of the story? Was God faithful to judge the Babylonians? Remember, Habakkuk just said in verse 3, this vision that I've given you, it will not fail. It will certainly come. Was God faithful? Just a little parenthesis of history, because I did this with the Assyrian kings as well. Here's the entire list of the kings of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And those top two names we've already talked about multiple times. Very famous men, Nabopolassar and his son Nebuchadnezzar. Both brilliant military strategists and leaders. And as you can see by the dates between the two of them, they ruled over this massive empire for 65 years. But in spite of their greatness, the Babylonian empire is going to fall very, very quickly. Quicker than most great empires the world has ever seen. The reason for that is those final three guys at the bottom, absolute disaster. They're going to come to an end in the year 539. So do the math on that. How, how long does the, 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 the mighty Babylonian empire last? Less than 100 years. Come on. We got like math teachers in this church. People are looking at their phone. Man, I admit I use my calculator far too much. A long time, okay? But, but the, the kingdom itself it falls pretty quickly. So what's going on? Well, these guys, these last three guys, absolute disaster. And God's sovereignty again. God is moving the pieces around the chessboard 300 miles to the east. During the reign of these last three guys, there is a king rising who has a vision that he will someday conquer Babylon. His name is Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus the Great. And he is busy consolidating a Persian empire by incorporating the, the Medes and the Elamites into one what we call proto-Iranian people that will eventually become known as the Achaemenid dynasty. One of the most impressive empires the world has ever seen. And so, again, looking at the map, now we've got the red dot is Babylon. Persia comes from the Far East, but they're going to incorporate the army of the Medes and the army of the Elamites, and they are going to come and lay siege to the city of Babylon. How many days does it take the Persians to capture Babylon? One day. God said, I will judge this people in one day. They were able to take down the city of Babylon. Now, I'm going to save that story for when we come back. It's recorded in Daniel chapter 5, how it goes down. But it's an important story. So God is moving the pieces around the table. He says, I will judge, and he judges. I will build up, I will tear down. And he builds up, and he tears down. And so he's sovereign. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, God is in control. So chapter 2 closes. Look at verse 20. The very last verse in chapter 2 is the summary statement. In light of all this, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What does that tell you? The greatest nations the most powerful armies, the most authoritative kings in the presence of Almighty God in his temple will bow their head and shut their mouths because God is king and sovereign over all. Now, when we come back to the Minor Prophets in a few weeks, we'll pick up the story of Cyrus because what is Cyrus going to do? He's going to send the Jews back to Jerusalem, which is really cool. The Persians will be God's anointed tool 
to send his people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. That's for another day. Let's look at the final chapter in Habakkuk and we'll be done. Chapter three. Okay, so this is where it all culminates. Chapter three is written as a song of prayer. And it's gonna help us see how we can prepare for really difficult times, for natural disasters, for a cancer diagnosis, for a car accident, for war, for a pandemic. We're going to see how we're supposed to respond. Remember what Jesus said in John 16? He said, these things I've spoken to you so that you may have what? Peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, he promised. But I've overcome the world. So take courage. Have peace. Jesus is in control. That, that should be our attitude as we come here even this morning. So this is where the journey of chapters 1 and 2 now takes Habakkuk from worry to worship. Look at, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according Shiginioth, and that's a poetic form or a, 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 an, an intense emotional poetic form. Verse 2, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known, underline this statement, in wrath, remember mercy. So what should a believer do when he's waiting on God through times of tribulation and stress? Well, the next 13 verses are a poetic description of how God, this divine warrior Yahweh, has in the past intervened in powerful ways on behalf of his people. He is mighty and he is sovereign over all things. And here in verse 2, Habakkuk recalls all that. and He says, I've heard the report about you, Lord. And then on the basis of God's faithfulness in the past, he asked that Yahweh would intervene again. So he says, revive your work now, Lord. You've been faithful in the past. You've intervened then. Do it again. And then the heart of his request. As you judge your people in wrath, Lord, remember your mercy. God has changed Habakkuk's perspective now. He has changed his heart. In chapter 1, he had been looking at the situation from below, from the perspective of human understanding. Now he's seeing it from above. He's seeing it from, from where God sits. Now he views Judah's future in light of her past. God will judge his own people. Habakkuk accepts that now. God will judge his own people. The reason really isn't the issue. God is sovereign. He can do as he pleases. He accepts that. But here we see him recalling the mercy of God, how God has always preserved a remnant. So he trusts that God is going to do that again. In the past, you've judged, but you've always preserved your remnant. Now, Lord, revive your work and do that again. As you judge your people, remember me. Remember my family. Remember the faithful ones in Judah. Be our refuge. Save us, O Lord. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying. We saw this last week, didn't we? Salvation and judgment always go together. They always go together. In order for God to be merciful, to save those who live by faith, he must also pour out his wrath upon those who are proud. Save one, judge the other. Drop down to verse 16 now. And I love this part because it's so real. Habakkuk has grown in faith. Okay, but listen to me now. Look at me up here. He's still scared. He's still scared. How could you not be scared in this moment? If he wasn't scared, I'd be thinking the guy's a robot. He's still afraid. Verse 16 says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones and in my place I tremble. 
Why? Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people, the Babylonians, to arise who will invade us. He's like, I got to wait for this. I know what's coming. I've seen it in the vision, and now I've got to quietly wait for all of this violence to come upon me and my people. What an awful thing. Consider what this would have meant for everybody that he knows and loves in Judah. Would he himself be slaughtered? We don't, we don't know the end of Habakkuk. Was he slaughtered by the Babylonians? Was his wife raped? Was the rest of his family taken into slavery? That's what he had seen. So imagine the fear you'd have in your heart. What, what if I told you there was a massive Islamic army rolling down the five freeway right now headed towards Santa Clarita? And you knew exactly what they would do when they get here with you and your family. This is what Habakkuk has to consider. This awful day of distress. And his stomach churns and his knees buckle. But he understands now. He's, he's submitted to the idea that God must do this. God must judge. In order for him and his fellow believers to be saved, God must pour out his wrath. Look finally at verses 17 and 18. This is what summarizes the whole thing. Some of the most beautiful language in the Old Testament. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. So that's, that's his expectation based on the vision of what's going to happen to the land of Judah. And in an agricultural society, basically what that means is everything gets scraped. It's a desolation. Yet look what he says in verse 18. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. What does it remind you of? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Anybody say Job? What did Job say? The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's the same mindset. Regardless of circumstances, I will rejoice. Friends, look at me for a second. This is the faith test that none of us hopes ever comes. But we all have to be ready for. Will we trust in God for who God is? Will we worship him for that alone? Or will we Worship and serve and trust him only because of the good things that he gives us that makes us happy and comfortable. That's the key choice that's coming down the road. You start looking at the book of Revelation and you know the sheep and the goats are going to go in two different directions. And you're going to know who really trusts the Lord and who's only been worshiping because God has given them nice things to make them happy and comfortable. But what, when, what happens when this test comes? Will we continue to trust him? Will we worship him if the worst thing you can think about comes to pass? Verse 18 tells us that Habakkuk's trust and, and peace and joy were no longer dependent upon his circumstances. And when judgment came in 586 BC, he would still rejoice. You say, well, how's that possible? It's because he knew that God would fulfill his promises and that God would be his refuge in the midst of that chaos. And that knowledge and that trust is what would carry him as he waited over the dark days ahead. So, so how do we apply this? I mean, hopefully you've already got a ton of things. I'm just going to give you a really quick list 
but hopefully you've already learned a whole bunch of things. The first one is obvious. God is sovereign over everything, over every event in our world. Now, we love that idea, but take note about this. There's a couple things that come with it that can be a frustration. Number one, it's in his timetable, not ours. He's sovereign, but he moves according to his schedule, not ours. Habakkuk learned this. Divine delays are not an indication that God's lack of resolve is somehow connected to him not meeting out his justice. Justice will come. Judgment will always come in his time. Secondly, his sovereign plan is not always easy or comfortable. Sometimes it comes with tragedy and calamity. But blessed be the name of the Lord, right? That's such an important principle. Second one is this. God will judge the proud. It is a foregone conclusion. He promises not to overlook sin, not to brush it aside as if it doesn't matter. Every sin will be accounted for. Every sin will be punished either by you or by Jesus, period. And so that's good news. We don't have to take vengeance for all the injustice we see. We can leave room for him to judge and for him to pour out his wrath. That's number two. Number three, the righteous will live by faith until the end. That's how we end up in heaven. We persevere in the faith till we draw our final breath and the Lord calls us home. We live by faith. Make sense? Number four, faith doesn't necessarily eliminate our intense emotions. We just saw this with Habakkuk. He's afraid. So when we're feeling nervous, when we're feeling a little jittery about things like a virus that's going around, God doesn't say, well, here's what I want you to do. Just play act like you're fine. You know what? When you come to me in prayer, just act like you're okay. No. God says it's okay to come with our honest emotions. God knows you better than you know yourself. Now, we seek his face, right? And again, we start with what we know about God so that it informs the place that we end up in, but we don't have to play act. We're going to continue as human beings as we wrestle with the flesh to feel these things. By the way, that's part of why we're here locking arms together, right? As we're feeling jittery, I can call you up and say, hey, encourage me, brother. And you can call somebody up and say, hey, I'm a little jittery right now. Can you give me a word of encouragement? We lock arms together in the midst of distress, right? It's good. Number five, trust in the Lord and rejoice no matter what. And you say, but that's so hard. But rock solid trust in the Lord can be developed. Did you know that? It's not something that we're ever finished doing. It's something that we develop. It comes from pursuing a settled, abiding trust in who God is. Hear me now. And the best time to develop it is now before the trouble comes. Right? Because if you start seeking that when the trouble comes, you're going to struggle. Settle it now in your heart who God is. Settle it by the truth of Scripture so that when the trouble comes, you are ready. Life changes circumstances change, God does not. So come what may, an invading army, a tanking economy, a spreading virus, all of those things are possibilities, but our salvation is utterly secure. So honestly, here's how I see this whole coronavirus thing, just personally, processing through that this week. I see God has three choices with me. Number one, he can sovereignly protect me from getting it. And I'll say, thank you, Lord. Secondly, he can ordain that I get it, and then he can stretch my faith as I'm struggling to recover so that I lean more on him and I'm more dependent on him. And that's good too, right? Or three, he could ordain that I get it and I pass away from this life. 
and then I get heaven. In all of those possibilities, God is good. In all of those possibilities, he's working all things together for my good. That's how we approach difficulties and circumstances. Whatever he chooses to do with me in this virus, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ Jesus. Amen? I'll end with this one because it applies so well. Number six, God's plans are not often apparent to us. Why is this virus here? How many of you guys have, have, have asked the big question? Why is this happening all over the world, right? Not just locally, everywhere. I try to remind you this often, but I'll say it again. In these days, while we live here on the earth, we only see dimly and in part. And we're not promised answers to every mystery, but I can say this with confidence. The coronavirus is a part of God's judgment upon this earth. It is. And I can say that because of Romans 1.18, where Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Because how many of us are righteous? None. So it's being revealed. I also know this. If you look at Habakkuk 3.5, here's what it says. In his wrath, pestilence goes before him and plague comes after him. Huh. Hmm. So is this virus a foreshadowing of something worse to come? Absolutely. Read your Bibles. Absolutely. This is an attention getter. In the great tribulation described in Revelation 6, when the lamb breaks the fourth seal, John sees something horrific. He sees an ashen-colored horse. And his rider's name is Death. And Hades is falling after it. And here's what it says. And authority was given to this rider over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence. This will be a part of the end times. Much more lethal diseases than coronavirus. By the way, a quarter of the earth right now would be almost two billion people with a B. So what we're facing today is pretty mild compared to that. But meanwhile, God is grabbing your attention with this. He's saying, do you see how frail life is? And the bigger question is, God is saying, am I your refuge? Are you trusting in me alone? Listen, if you're here this morning and you're trusting in anything else but Christ alone, today is the day to lay it aside and to trust in him alone. Because only then will you be saved from the wrath that's to come. And if you've already trusted in Christ, then your instructions from Habakkuk are very simple. Live by faith, exult in the Lord, and rejoice in the God of your salvation. Amen? So in the midst of the chaos and the panic that is going around all around us these days, and you're going to see more of it tomorrow, may we be known as a people that don't worry, but worship. Amen? Let's pray.